Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, team. Grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. As we continue in the study that we've been walking through over the last uh, seven weeks, six, seven weeks, uh, looking at the unshakable faith that we can have in Christ. The things that we can count on in a world that seems to be ever-changing and shifting around us. There is some constant. There is some solid ground that we can place our feet. And tonight we're going to look at how we can count on Christ's return. Anybody remember the movies of a while back that I believe the Billy Graham Association either produced or helped make them famous? Uh, a, a Thief in the Night... In movies like this, anybody, anyone? I remember the first time watching that. Uh, I don't know that I was convicted of sin as much as I was terrified of losing my mom in the grocery store. Because I was convinced that if I couldn't find mom, then maybe the rapture had taken place and, and something had gone wrong in, in my life and, and I'm left behind. And, and another generation comes and there's a series of books that come out with the title left behind, and then a generation of movies, and now again our culture is being inundated with this concept of the return of Christ. And I want us to not just look at certain aspects of what pop culture picks, but what is there for us as far as a foundation of what hope we can hang on the fact that we can count on Christ's return. There are a few topics in the Bible that speak about with more frequency and more confidence than Christ's second coming. Not many that can compare to this. Both the Old and the New Testament are filled with promises of certainty that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is coming back to establish His kingdom. The Bible and Christ's second coming have lots of places where we we see this evident. There are 1,845 references in the Old Testament that, that at least my search found referencing Christ's second coming. Seventeen Old Testament books give it prominence. It focuses on this. 318 references in the New Testament. That's one out of every 30 verses, and you look at it as a whole, of how often that Christ's second coming is is spoken about. 23 New Testament books make a specific reference. And for every prophecy of Christ's first coming... There are eight referring to his second coming. The reason I'm highlighting these statistics tonight is to drive home the importance of this biblical truth and the importance apparently that God places on us understanding and being aware and living appropriately that Christ will return again. Anyone who calls himself or herself a Christian must acknowledge this certainty, not maybe, not possibly, not just with some mythology, but with certainty that Christ is coming again in His second coming. You can count on it. Further, a study of the events leading up to Christ's return could lead you to conclude that we're living in a time when His return is imminent. In fact, when the Apostle John wrote his letter, he was convinced of the very same thing. Every generation of believers has had this same conviction that God has has planted in them this this great expectation of a hope of a blessing that is to come. All the New Testament apostles looked forward to Christ's soon return. 
because this didn't happen in the timeline that they thought, should we conclude that, that their words have no credibility? And just because John and other apostles thought that Christ would be coming in, in, in their mind soon, should we say, well, they have no idea what they're talking about? Absolutely not. See, God has withheld the exact time and occasion of Christ's return so that every Christian in every generation may experience this expectation and motivation and hope that it brings in Christ's guaranteed second coming. God gives us just to know insights on, on the events to come surrounding the second coming to whet our appetite, just enough to whet our appetite, to stimulate our motivation and to build hope in us. But not so much so that we are satisfied to sit back as Christians in our lazy boy chair, idly waiting for his return. You see, the, the interest in Christ's return has never been higher than it is now. It's talked about, it's, it's written about, movies are made about it. And the events in the Middle East and the political climate uh, affecting the nation of Israel seem to indicate that the stage is being set for Christ's second coming. Consequently, I think many believers channel their interests by focusing on the time, on the dates, on the numbers, on the signs surrounding Christ's return. But the Bible is not primarily interested in the when and in the how of Christ's return, it's, it's more concerned about the who and the what of this great event. And it's at those two questions, the who and the what, that I think that Pastor John would cry out to us tonight, there is hope for us, there is instruction on how to live this week with the guarantee that Christ will come again. The Bible is a very practical book for living, and, and you see that this this may give us one more reference to Christ's second coming. So we would not have a, a time or a day when to mark on our calendars, but it's most possible that we see this when in this how. But this who in this what. Who will be ready? And what must I do to be ready for Christ's return? Not so much when and how, but who will be ready and how do I need to be ready? We want to take John's words here and read into them some hidden meaning that gives us a secret insight to the last days. I want to caution us from doing that because I think we miss the point of what Pastor John wants us to catch. I believe what John is saying is I want to show you how you can live victoriously and, and be ready for Christ's return in any day, in any generation, at any time. Look at verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2. Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the end of the world has come. Now, John is not talking about a particular person here who would be raised up as the Antichrist. He's talking about the spirit of Antichrist. This spirit that pervades and saturates every aspect of our culture. He's talking about the demonic spiritual forces in our day that are constantly at work to remove God from every aspect of our society. It's the spiritual battle that we sing about. It's the spiritual warfare that we, we take up arms as Christian soldiers to fight against this 
spirit of Antichrist. He's talking about the demonic agenda that is systematically working to undermine the biblical foundations of family and marriage like we've been talking about in our morning gatherings. These are examples of of many Antichrists who've worked their way into our culture and into our lives. But look at verse 19 and notice where they come from in this next verse. These people left our churches because they never really belonged with us. When they left us, it proved that they do not belong with us. The greatest threat to the kingdom of God doesn't come from without. But here, John is telling us the greatest threat comes from within. The greatest threat to the kingdom of Christ is not from an ungodly agenda from media, though this has an impact. It's not from courts who try to legislate from the bench. It's, it's not just from a political uh, battle, but it comes from within. It's from those who say they hold to God's word, and yet their life shows very different. Jesus' strongest rebuke was not to the prostitutes or the sinners of his day it was to those who professed to speak and live for god whose lives were filled with compromise and corruption it was to those who professed to love god but who were still in love with the world that's the deadly trap that we must avoid and and i believe it's this temptation that we have to overcome where pastor john in this this epistle written to us in in 1 John, he says, this is what I have in my heart for you. I want you to avoid these traps of the the danger that can come from within. And in verse 20 through 28, he gives us some practical handles to live ready for Christ's return. The first insight found in this interesting word John uses in verse 20 through 27. Let's look at it together. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now, I'll jot this down. I'm, I'm ready to live for Christ's return. I'm ready to be there for Christ's return. To do this, I must pursue God's anointing. So John is telling us, Jesus is coming back. It's not a, it's not a question. It's a fact. He's coming back. So should we just quit our job? Should we stop paying insurance payments? Should we just sell everything and, and get ready for this leap in the sky? Well, I don't think that's John's point. His point is he's saying, You can count on Christ's return. It should impact your life when everything's falling apart. You need to first and foremost pursue God's anointing. You and I will be ready for his return when we're pursuing his anointing. This term anointing is referenced in many religious circles today. And consequently, I think it's been misunderstood by some. In the Old Testament, anointing meant that this impartation of God's power and authority was for his chosen leaders. That's what this was about. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God leads his prophet Samuel to anoint the future king of Israel, David. Listen to these words. So he sent and had him, David, brought in. He was glowing with health and handsome features. Then the Lord said, 
rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. This is a a classic example, I believe, of, of anointing in the Old Testament. A ritual that usually offered at the occasion of a selection of a king or a priest or or a key leader. The oil represented the very Spirit of God, and the oil was poured over their head, and it communicated the gift or the authority or the honor that God had separated or had sanctified that person for a special use. In the New Testament, anointing means that this impartation of Christ's power and authority is for all believers. As James reminds us in the New Testament, in James chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And their prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make them well, and anyone who has committed sin will be forgiven. Anointing is is not just for kings, it's not just for priests, but it's extended throughout all of the church. And It is more than just being anointed for healing, physically. In the New Testament, the anointing is always tied to this total redemptive work that Christ has done for us on the cross. It's healing in His name, not just physical, but in every aspect there is this anointing tied to Christ's work on the cross. In essence, it's the manifest power of the authority of Christ's Spirit on the life of that believer. Receiving that anointing implies that you have received the Holy Spirit of God into your life. That's what John means by the anointing here in his letter to this church. He's addressing those who have lived under the control, under the guidance, under the power of the indwelling Spirit of Christ. The New Living Translation brings out this verse in verse 27 this way, But you have received the Holy Spirit and He lives within you. So continue in what He has taught you and continue to live in Christ. How do we count on Christ's return? How do we make sure that we are ready? Pursue the anointing of Christ. Pursue this very Spirit of Christ living in us, anointing us, giving us His power and strength. Now, what does that mean when it comes to living ready for Christ's return? Instead of getting an application at the end, in these three points, I want us to look at how this applies to our life one after the other. When I pursue Christ's anointing, you and I are equipped for His return. We are equipped for His return when we have His anointing, when we pursue His anointing. This is what the Apostle Paul was driving home when he challenged the church at Philippi. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. In other words... Start living by the power of the Holy Spirit. Start acting on what you have already received in Christ. Our enemy that we are at war with in this spiritual battle, Satan, he doesn't want you to understand that the same Spirit of God that was with each of the people we read about in Scripture is the very same Spirit of God alive in us. We are to act upon what we have already been given. He wants to try to get you and I to live For God, out of our own flesh, out of our own strength, out of our own preference or might, rather than depending on the anointing, on the Spirit of God. 
Pastor John reminds us in verse 27, you have received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you. So live like it, in other words. How will you overcome the spirit of the Antichrist in your life? Quit listening to the lies that breed fear and despair in your mind. In Christ, you are more than a conqueror. Quit listening to the broken record that's played over and over again of defeat that Satan plays for you. Because in Christ, you are a victor. Quit acting like a loser. Quit acting like someone who has lost the battle. In Christ, you have died to sin. Quit living in sin and bringing life to the flesh again. Child of God, you are His anointed one. Start living like it. Throw off the old tattered rags of defeat and put on the garment of praise. Live in the confident assurance of His Holy Spirit's presence with you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, each month of the year. The second handle is in the next chunk of verses, verse 21 through 23. And it talks to us about we can be ready for Christ's return when we follow God's truth. Look at verse 21. So I'm writing to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and falsehood. And who is the great liar? The one who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Such people are antichrist, for they have denied the Father and the Son. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But anyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. One of the most frequent questions being asked today is, what is truth? What is really true? What is solid? What goes for every single situation? Everybody can have their own idea of what truth is, but unless you have some objective truth to govern your life, you will have a very, very limited and narrow experience that will be tragic in this life. The Bible offers to us some insight that I think is helpful. In the Old Testament, truth was the written word of God. In the Old Testament, God did not speak directly to his people often. He spoke through the prophets most of the time, who in turn recorded what God said. And it was through the law, the written word of God, where the people of, of God learned to follow the truth. And Deuteronomy 8.3 declares, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The Bible that you and I hold in our hand, the Bible that we have downloaded on our devices, is the sum total of God's revealed truth to us in a written form. He has chosen prophets and apostles and given us the Bible, His Word, the Word of God in a book. But Jesus Christ is also the Word of God in flesh. I reference this again this morning. Jesus is the, the living Word of God. In the New Testament, truth is, uh, is also the living Word of God. Look with me at John 1.14. If you track with me on this, I believe it could open up a pathway for us. The Gospel of John 1.14. So the Word, Jesus Christ, became human and lived here on earth among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
We begin to see here back in 1 John, where we were before, Pastor John reminds us how critical knowing Jesus Christ is as the living Word of God. How critical it is to discovering truth and following truth. And Pastor John knew that it could be confusing for us to discern truth in our culture, where every worldview is held equal and tried to give the same airtime. That's not new to our generation. That's been around through all of history. So he gives us this simple filter to run all of the worldviews through. And that filter is the lordship of Jesus Christ. For example, you hear a truth on the internet. You hear a truth on TV. You hear a truth from a friend. You hear a truth at work. It seems reasonable when you hear it. It seems to fit your lifestyle. It seems to make sense. But if it denies the lordship of Jesus Christ... Pastor John would say, it's a lie. It doesn't make any sense. It is therefore false. It's the source of the spirit of the Antichrist. Don't follow the teaching that does not submit itself to the Lordship of Christ. Don't buy into that lie, John would say. So here's an application for us today. To live ready for Christ's return means to follow truth. To pursue anointing, but also to follow truth. And the only way you'll know what truth is, is to make the source of your truth, Jesus Christ, make Him first and foremost the priority in every aspect of what is true and what is not. The application for us is, is when you and I deny Christ's truth in my life, we are ill-prepared, we are not prepared for His return. The converse is true as well, that when I accept Christ is the source of truth in my life. I am prepared for his return. Jesus himself reaffirms this when he says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's an implied obedience to this knowledge of truth that Jesus says is key to our faith in him. So how do we deny Jesus and deny his lordship in our life? Let me offer a few common ways. Maybe it's harboring and hiding that secret disobedience to God. Maybe it's harboring a spirit of unforgiveness. A spirit that is judgmental. Acting like you are the owner of your life and your resources when God is the one who's called you to be a steward. Ignoring his still small voice that speaks to you. Resisting his authority in your life. There are just a few ways that we can begin to not allow him to be Lord in every area of our life. Whenever we say no to him or not now God, which is a delayed response that ends up in no, you're denying his lordship in your life. The spirit of the Antichrist, it's against Christ will do everything he can to cloud the issue and keep you from giving Jesus complete control. He will use people. He will use your past. (coughs) He will use problems. He will even use prosperity to get your attention off of the issue at hand to get you distracted from living obedient to Jesus. We have amazing powers of rationalization. We can rationalize ourselves in and out of anything and everything but the truth is jesus is the lord and john says that we are to follow the truth are you following truth it's fun to look at the end time prophecies 
But I believe it's more than fun. I believe it is absolutely critical. Not just that you and I see that the day could be very near, but that we could see we are called to live a certain way to be ready. Are we pursuing the anointing, the power of the Spirit in our life? Are we following His truth? And finally, we are to live in God's presence. This is how Pastor John tells us to be ready for the second coming. Look at verse 24. So you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will continue to live in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. Again in verse 28. And now, dear children, continue to live in fellowship with Christ so that when He returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from Him in shame. By far, this is the best way to be ready for Christ's return is to live in His presence every single day. For those who do this, his coming back will not be a shock. Rather, it will be a a natural step nearer to the one who you have come to love and follow every single day. What does it mean to be in the presence of God? In the Old Testament, God often was, was distant. There was no abiding presence of God in a personal way. And so God's presence was mediated. For example, in the book of Exodus, we learned that whenever the people wanted to say something to God, they would have to go through Moses. And when God had something to say to the people, He would often tell Moses first and have Moses share it with the people. For centuries, God used anointed mediators to affirm His presence and His message. But in the New Testament... Through Jesus Christ, God's presence is immediate. We see this in Hebrews 10, 21 and 22. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus became the mediator of the Father to all man and to all woman. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's people, that's Jesus Christ, let us go right into the presence of God with true hearts fully trusting Him. Through His sacrifice for our sins, Jesus opened up a door for us to have immediate access to the throne room. We are to activate this privilege, but I'm afraid sometimes we we don't count the true cost that this privilege that's been given to us and what it took for that to take place. You and I can immediately call the name of the Lord and speak right to Him because Jesus is the mediator for us and has bridged that gap. The last thing Jesus said before he ascended to heaven was, I will be with you always. And not just in their thoughts, but his spirit would come to live in them. That is the same promise that you and I have. He says, I am standing at the door and I am knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. Jesus comes to live in us. And often we look at this at the time of salvation. We see that painting that's famous to all of us, of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And we use this as a way to talk to people about surrendering their life to Jesus. But what would it look like if we left the doors of our life open for the very Spirit of God to move freely in every area? Living in His presence. Pursuing His anointing. Following His truth. John says, if you live like that, you are living ready for Christ's return an application for us when i practice christ's presence in my life i am living ready 
for his return. Let me remind you once again of what Pastor John gave his counsel in verse 28. And now, dear children, continue to live in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you'll be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. And many people treat Christ's second coming like people on the coast treat the threat of an approaching hurricane. They wait till a storm is predicted and wait for the warning call and then they cry, oh no, the storm is coming. And then they, they will batten down the hatches, they will board up the windows and they will prepare once the alarm has been sounded. The only difference is with the hurricane, you can sometimes get a warning. But the Son of Man will come when you and I least expect it. Instead of risking our life on the chance that you and I can somehow gather up enough of our willpower to be ready for when he comes, doesn't it make a lot more sense to live ready? And I think that's what John would tell us tonight. I can tell you for certain that you and I can count on the promise, on the fact that Jesus is coming again. It's a whole lot more important to know who is ready and how we can be ready than to know when this will take place and how this will exactly take place. Are you ready tonight? I go back to that thought of a thief in the night in the movie of the rapture. And I remember being in the grocery store when I got separated from mom and great fear shot through me. And it's appropriate to be afraid when we look at a life living in disobedience to God. But I think the thrust of John's message to us tonight is not one of fear. If you lose your friend, if you lose someone around you, did the rapture take place and I'm lost? But could it be a calling from a spiritual father of past to say, you can live ready with assurance, and when the trumpet sounds, you won't say, oh no, you won't say, give me a minute, but you'll say, finally, my Jesus is here. The one whose anointing I have been pursuing, the one whose truth I've been following, the one in whom I have been living ready for. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these, my friends, who love you deeply. Lord, I wrestled with you this afternoon of why you want me to preach this. I, I tried to talk you out of it. Because I feel like sometimes this is a, a truth that we have heard and we know. And I, I bet we're close, somewhere close to 100% who would say, I am ready to go when you call. But Jesus, I believe that you're wanting to say to us, there is a comfort, there is an assurance, there's something we can count on, knowing that you are coming again. And that our living in obedience to you is not in vain. It's not ritualistic or some kind of habit. It can give us the peace of mind, the assurance that State Farm can't give, that Allstate can't give, that GEICO can't give. The peace of mind that is far broader than any insurance policy. It's the peace of mind of your word that has been true from generation to generation. Your faithfulness is known all across this globe, across time and space. And I thank you for the message you've given to us from John today. One that may be a warning for some, but for many 
a call to assurance that you are coming again, Jesus, and that you can call us to be ready for whenever that takes place. Thank you, Jesus, for your words tonight. I pray that you'll help us to apply them by seeking your anointing, by appropriating the very power of your Spirit. Father, I I pray that you'll help us to follow your truth. Would you help us to live in your presence, knowing that no matter where we are at, you are with us. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Amen. I want to thank you for your attention tonight. I shared uh, Saturday when we had a celebration service for Norm Mutt that my last extended conversation with Norm, I had no idea it would be my last extended conversation. But I'm so thankful for the questions I asked and for the answers he gave. He shared with me that he loves Jesus and he's ready to go. Neither he nor I knew how significant that would be at that moment. But I challenge you tonight, not out of fear, not to play on your emotions. As you take off, maybe you go out to eat, you go home and spend time with your family. Take time to talk with the people that you love and ask them, are you ready? Not out of a judgmental spirit, but out of one where we can have confidence. I remember very pivotal times when my parents, when my mentors would ask me such questions. And it not only spurred me on to see if I was ready, but it also gave me confidence when I could say, yeah. It doesn't matter what I face tomorrow. I can have total assurance that if Jesus comes back or if my life ends before them, I am ready because I'm pursuing his anointing, I'm following his truth, and I'm living in his presence. Find somebody, ask them those questions, cherish the relationships God's given to you. God bless you. You're dismissed.